Welcome to Plain Talk. Plain Talk has a new podcast every two weeks with up-to-date information about aviation technologies for general and business aviation. From home to cockpit to boardroom to personal tech, Plain Talk provides informative information for pilots, industry insiders, and aviation enthusiasts alike. My name is Phil Lightstone. I'm a general aviation pilot with over 1,900 hours in my logbook, flying almost every week with over 30 years experience in the technology and aviation industries. Well, I'd like to welcome into the Plane Talk cockpit, John and Sharon Chandler, who have some interesting uh, stories to tell us about, notably about uh, uh, Sharon's uh, father, uh, Leonard Burchill. Uh, Welcome to the Plane Talk cockpit. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you today, Phil. Thank you so much. So, John, just to kick it off, uh, I I do uh, understand that uh, you're formerly with the Royal Canadian Air Force and have a bit of a military background yourself. Yes, that is correct. I spent uh, 31 years in the regular force, um, eight years in the Air Reserve. I initially trained as a radio officer then switched over to pilot and spent the last 20 years of my Air Force career as a military pilot. Must have flown some very cool airplanes, uh, uh, John. And, and first and foremost, let me thank you for your service. Uh, but what would be the most notable airplane you flew? Oh, that's an interesting question because um, I initially trained, as I said, um, as a navigator in transport command. And then when I um, when I cross trained a pilot, because I'm fairly tall, um, I couldn't go into the jet training program. So I trained on tutors, the aircraft flown, but now then and now by the Snowbirds. I then trained on the Beach Musketeer, sorry, the uh, the Beach 18 um, as a transport pilot, and then I went to um, the VIP squadron in Ottawa and flew as a VIP pilot for presidents and heads of state and and um, individuals like that, plus the regular scheduled back and forth across Canada flights on the Convair 580, of which I was a captain. Must have been quite, quite interesting, the folks you had in the back of the airplane. It was extremely interesting. And... Um, I can tell you an interesting story about my days when I was a a radio officer in in transport command. One of the friends of mine on the squadron, also a radio officer, was on a trip carrying the Queen and Prince Philip on a cross-Canada tour. And this was on a North Star aircraft, the BC-4 North Star aircraft. And the radios that we had in the airplane were rather antique. They were tube radios. If one of the tubes burned out, then you pulled the radio out and replaced it because we carried spare tubes. And this case was um, the radio officer had a problem with the transmitter. He pulled it out and went to reach in and pull out the burnt out tube, only to discover that it was, of course, very hot. And he brought his hand back very quickly and he felt this tap on his shoulder. And he turned to the individual who was tapping and he didn't know who it was and said, I can't you see, I'm busy, I'm busy. And he went in again to try and get the tube out. 
uh, because there was also some sort of pressure carrying uh, royalty on board. And once again, the tap on the shoulder. He said, actually, the way it was explained to me, there was an expletive. (laughs) And then this hand came over the shoulder and my friend looked at it. And on the sleeve, it started with gold at the end and went virtually halfway up the sleeve with the gold rings. It turned out it was Prince Philip. And Prince Philip was trying to hand my friend a glove (laughs) to help him take out the tooth. And my friend was convinced that the next stop, he'd be court-martialed and then probably taken out and shot. Of course, <laughs> nothing happened, but it was, a, it was a marvelous story. Of course, it brought to light how really how good a man Prince Philip was and how much he believed in other people. And in my mind, he reminded me in that sense of my father-in-law, Leonard Burton. And when did you meet your now lovely wife, Sharon? I met her in the officer's mess at RCF station Trenton back in, um, oh golly, I think it was the night. The dawn of time. The dawn of time, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely, the dawn of time. We've been in it 60 years. I, I was uh, temporarily in the military myself as a summer student. Oh, wow. Sharon, what rank did you hold? There was a program then for university students for summer work, and we marched, graded, uh, I should say, once a week during the winter, and it was the best-paying summer job a girl could get in those days. For sure, hanging out with interesting people like uh, your now husband. You know, we have this very famous um, individual, Sharon's father, Leonard, and I'll just kick it off by mentioning his honors. uh, Officer of the Order of the British Empire, Distinguished Flying Cross, Officer of the Legion of Merit, member of the Order of Canada, inducted into Canada's Aviation Hall of Fame, awarded the Canadian Forces decoration with five clasps, the Vimy Award. There's a sports pavilion at the Royal Military College in Kingston named after him. The family set up a scholarship in his name at the Air Cadet League of Canada. In 2009, named as one of the 100 most influential Canadians in aviation, and most notably the savior of Ceylon, as coined by Winston Churchill in 1946. He was uh, born in St. Catharines, graduated from the Royal Military College in 1937 and commissioned into the RCAF, became uh, a pilot flew anti-convoy and anti-submarine missions in 1939 in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, notably captured in an Italian ship at the outbreak of uh, the war. 1942 went on to 413 Squadron in the Shetland Islands, flying patrols over the North Sea in uh, Catalina flying boats, very cool airplanes. April 1942 was patrolling south of Ceylon, nine hours into the mission, spotted a Japanese fleet heading for Ceylon, was able to get a radio message out, but sadly was shot down by six zeros off of the aircraft carrier Hiryu. During that action, three of his uh, crew were were killed. Remaining six were picked up by a Japanese uh, destroyer, 
and he spent the rest of uh, the war as a, a POW in uh, four different uh, POW camps and really spent a lot of his, of his efforts as a POW focusing on a, a, on a resistance to the Japanese treatment of POWs and arguably helped to reduce the Allied death rate in, in the POW camps from, and I can't believe this, 30% to, to 2%. As a result of, of his leadership in organizing uh, and resisting, he had a, a, a physical toll that he paid through uh, beatings and solitary uh, confinement. Eventually, the camp he was uh, interned in was liberated by American troops in August 1945. Post-war, he was uh, the Canadian attache staff in uh, Washington, D.C., a member of the NATO delegation in Paris, commanded a fighter base, commandant of RMC from 1963 until his retirement from the RCAF in 1967, honorary colonel 400 tactical helicopter and training squadron and number 413 squadron in the air reserves. He became the chief executive administrative officer at York University until 1982 and passed away in uh, Kingston, Ontario, my old hometown, at the tender age of, uh, of 89. He just must have had uh, an incredible career and his contribution to keeping Canada safe uh, was, uh, was amazing. So tell us a little bit about uh, uh, your father-in-law and Sharon, your dad. You pretty much said it all. <clears throat> uh, there's personal stories, of course. Um, father would never talk about his experiences uh, after he came home. Uh, I found out about it, first of all, as a teenager, when one of his fellow POWs came to visit, and I sort of hid behind the curtains and listened to them talk, because it was the only way I could ever hear any of the stories. And they had some good reminiscences. They tried to look on the bright side of things for their experiences, but I have a copy of a speech he gave that was pretty grim, because it outlined exactly what they went through in the various camps that he was in plus their, uh, their organizing of their final release from the, the last POW camps that they were in, where the uh, prisoners, once the word got out that uh, Hiroshima had been bombed, the prisoners took over the camp. It was quite a story. So he must have had um, a lot of interesting flying experiences. Oh, he did, yes. He, he, he loved being a pilot, and he flew as long as he could. So when you were part of the RCAF as a, a student, and, and I suppose in uniform, were you able to go for any official hops with, uh, with your dad in some cool airplanes? No, the, the sort of only official thing we ever did together is one, one year I was home in Ottawa from university, and I uh, got all dolled up in my uniform, and he and I went to the Governor General's levy together, and that was a wonderful experience to do together in uniform. <laughs> When you look at you know his medals, that must have been quite impressive, standing beside your your father with this massive chest full of uh, of medals, and the, the pride must have been amazing. Yeah, it stretched across the uh, <laughs> almost the full expanse of his chest. Yes. 
Yeah, he had uh, he had a lot of them, 18. So did he continue flying after his retirement from the RCAF and into civilian life? Yes, as an honorary colonel, he got a chance to do that with the squadron that uh, he was attached to, he represented. No, he was, um, he was the honorary colonel of a helicopter squadron and a maritime patrol squadron. 413 is a maritime patrol squadron based on the East Coast. But he and I did fly together. I was, um, as part of my, when I retired from the regular force, I transferred to the Air Reserve. And I was the deputy commander of the two tactical aviation wing at, at Downsview. And I remember flying my father and well, I was the captain of the helicopter and he was in the other seat and we flew to St. Hubert's for a meeting and I got permission from well, two interesting things. I got a permission to take him, obviously, well, I was ordered to take him. And the second time I took Sharon with me at night in a helicopter up to Montreal once again to attend a, a staff meeting at Saint Hubert, just outside of, of Montreal. Of uh, Montreal, I did. I did enjoy being a passenger with him when we were stationed in Goose Bay. He was space space yeah. We did a lot of uh, flying, and we uh, we got to fly with him. One of the most memorable ones was to go to the Grenfell mission. It was, uh, I don't know if you know anything about Sir Wilfred Grenfell, but it's worth looking up uh, the impact he had on Labrador. And what what airplane would you would you fly with then? Probably a DC-3, or it could have been a single-engine uh, Otter. Yeah, it was the Otter, I wow. think. Wow, yeah. that's an mm-hmm. uh, iconic uh, Canadian airplane. Yeah, <laughs> uh, well, he, he flew most of them, I think. Yes, he flew a lot of iconic airplanes. There's a, a, fl- a very interesting flying story about him when he was a student pilot. He and a couple of other student pilots um, from Trenton were were sent on a cross-country, and this will be familiar to our pilot friends today. They were sent on a cross-country, I think, from Trenton to Camp Borden. They, this was single pilot sub. I think there were three or four of them. And Leonard Birchall, Birch was determined to get to Camp Borden because I think this was before he was married. Uh, he had, I think, a girlfriend <laughs> there. And so he he took off and the weather got worse and worse and worse, but he was absolutely determined to press on. And he ended up scud running and getting down well below you know, safety heights, made it to Camp Borden, was met by the base commander there who heard that he was coming and was told to stand to attention and take off his flying suit. And underneath his flying suit, he was wearing civilian clothes, which was, of Uh-oh. course, another no-no. He was supposed to have been in uniform, but he thought if he was in his civilian clothes, what he could do, obviously, was dash downtown or dash into town and at Barry and meet up with these this girl. Well, unfortunately, he got a very severe dressing down and he was marched into the base commander's office, and he was semi-officially reprimanded. Not a severe reprimand, which would go on his records forever, but reprimanded. And so, of course, he did learn his lesson, I think. And, of course, the other pilots, I think there were three or four other pilots in other airplanes, had run into the bad weather and landed, either turned around and gone back or found some place to land without pressing on. But when Birch got back to Trenton, 
He was paraded once again in front of the base commander because the base commander from from Borden had called the base commander at Trenton and told him the full story. So Birch got another dressing down in the base commander's office at um, at Trenton. Fortunately, the base commander at Borden had said to the base commander at Trenton, I have already disciplined this officer, so you don't need to go ahead any further and discipline him anymore, which was a bit of a saving grace. But what it showed to Sharon and I was the absolute tenacity that her father had to do what he wanted to do. And in the case of the POW camps, there's a very interesting story, which I'm not quite sure is is all that well known. But I think he was in three or four different camps. Yeah, was in in four different camps. And I think at least one of them was a disciplinary camp. But in one of the camps, I gather they had three morphine pills. One. Well, sorry, one one morphine pill. No, Sharon is quite great. One morphine pill. And if you were in a state of extreme distress, and they had a doctor, a Canadian doctor in, in most of the camps who'd been captured with the troops, and every time this pill was offered to a patient to ease the pain, the patient said, no, I won't take it. Let's leave it for somebody in worse condition than me. And I think I put a lot of that down to the leadership, the leadership of of Leonard Joseph Virgil. But in the case John's talking about, the morphine pill was usually offered to men that were dying. And at the end of the war, they still had it. Amazing. They still had it. Yeah. 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 And he was in the disciplinary camp because he had called a sit-down strike in the camp where they were located at the time because the guards were beating the men sick well didn't matter mind you most of them were sick one way or another to make them go to work and dad was very worried that the death rate would escalate and so he said to them that the next time that they were the sick were ordered out to work that they had to do a sit-down strike and nobody could move it was an all-or-nothing effort it did stop the severely sick from being ordered to work and that's when he was sent off to the disciplinary camp to have him mend his ways. After after being beaten. And, oh, yeah. yeah after being, being beaten. And they were always beaten in the same place, so the wounds would never heal. In his case, it was his neck. And later in life, uh, which eventually killed him, he got cancer in that spot. Quite the, uh, the ultimate sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Very definitely. So, John, what was it like flying with your highly decorated father-in-law well we had we had a pretty good relationship i was in awe of his um, not his flying prowess but by that time of course he wasn't he hadn't been flying as a as a pilot for quite some time even though he was still in the military you know we we talk interestingly i remember we as we flew along in the in the in the, the bell 206 kiowa we talked about family Sharon had a brother and a sister, and we talked about them. Um, we talked them a little bit about Sharon. We talked. We had two two children. Of course, they were Birch's grandchildren, so we talked about them. It, it was family. We talked about family things in a sort of a, a father and and son type relationship. Yeah, he loved family celebrations. Oh yes, yes. Yeah. Did he ever? Huge, huge family. Christmas was unbelievably special. I remember 
when he was commandant of, of the Royal Military College, RMC, Sharon and I were stationed in Trenton at the time. And of course, we would go to Kingston for Christmas in the commandant's residence at the Royal Military College. Once there, just I think it was just before Christmas, the Minister of Defence at the time was visiting, and I got I got to meet him. Um, Sharon and I got to meet the Minister of Defence, which was quite a singular honour. It was interesting. Whenever we went for dinner at uh, the Birchalls, and Sharon's mother was an unbelievably good cook, which she passed on to her daughter, mm-hmm. we would dress for dinner. You would not go. To, I would not go to dinner without a shirt and tie and a jacket on. Every day of the week. Every day of the week, mind you, Bill. When I was a, a single officer living in the officers' mess at Trenton, when I first was starting my Air Force career, at five o'clock in the mess, you put on a your uniform with the tunic and the tie. Okay, and that you—that's how you had dinner. Of course, we had table service. But there was a certain level of decorum, which, to be very frank with you, and you'll probably edit this out, I find singularly lacking <laughs> in today's world. It's certainly a different set of values. Isn't it just? Yeah, this is, yeah, this, this is the 60s for us. Yeah. And we always do very formal at mealtimes. And there's often, there's often a company, guests as well. So there was another impetus to get dressed up and... Yeah. Be on one's best behavior. Best behavior, yeah. Mm-hmm. It also, I think, has a psychological impact on your behavior. Yeah, I think part of if you look good, you feel good, and if you feel good, you'll radiate that level of confidence out to uh, out to your audience, whether that's a, a customer, a colleague, a peer, a boss. Absolutely. Confidence and goodwill. You know, that's really the part, you know, the discipline that the military brings, as as you pointed out, you're probably not going to show up to a flight mission at 9 a.m. without your proper kit, shaved, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, one of the, one of the things, Phil, was in every camp that, uh, that Birch was in, he was the senior allied officer. At that time, he was a squadron leader or a major. And I think he tried to lead by example. And when the bomb was dropped and the war was over, Birch got the troops in the camp to go and disarm the Japanese guards. Birch actually went to the commandant's house, the camp commandant at the, the camp he was in, and took the commandant's sword. Now remember this, this is a Japanese commandant, a Japanese military officer. And to a Japanese military officer, the sword was was really a very, very precious item and not to be not to be led out literally of his sight. But Birch took the Japanese commander's sword and said, right, now here's what we're going to do. Birch organized the camp. They were on they were on the mainland um, in Japan not on a little island where he was at one of the punishment camps. They actually marched to the train station. He got this, those people in the camp that could actually march, or he got them sort of lined up, and they went to the train station, and they got on the train, and they went down, I think, into Tokyo to meet the Americans. 
Now, the Americans knew they were coming because the, the Americans knew where the POW camps were, and they actually dropped um, food. dropped supplies, food to the camps, Medicine. medicines and, and food um, out of airplanes. And so this gave Birch and the people in the camp a chance to at least fatten up a little bit, not very much because they couldn't afford to eat a great deal of food because it would have killed them because their stomachs were so they, they badly were, shrunken. They'd yeah. been starved. Yeah, they had been starved and beaten, yeah. mm-hmm. and they were sick. But he he led his men to meet the Americans. And, of course, I, I gather from what happened, they, the first American they met immediately got on his, his radio, and within minutes, I gather, according to the story that Birch told in one of the meetings he was at where he was a, a motivational speaker. Within a matter of minutes, they had ambulances, they had buses, they had medicine right there to meet them because the Americans realized how badly the prisoners had been treated. And in Birch's camp, in all of the camps, there were Americans, Canadians, um, Australian, Australian, Brits, Brits Czech, uh, there was Czech. Yeah, there was a Czech officer, a Chinese in one of them, Chinese in, in one of the camps. Yeah. And what Birch had to do was establish his authority. And mind you, he had the rank to do that, but he also had the strength of character and the ability to get men to do what he wanted them to do. And to work together. And to work together to try and get them all to be able to pull through, as you mentioned earlier about the death rate. There was, there's a, a story about, I think, the first camp he was in where he was the senior officer. And at mealtime, they were each given this tiny little bowl of rice gruel. And there was disagreement as to who got the best bowl. So he made them sit in a circle and he said, okay, I'll start. Who wants my bowl? And they traded back and forth and back and forth till everybody was satisfied that they had the bowl best suited to them. Then he said, okay, now we can eat. Amazing. Yeah. yeah, isn't it? Yeah. It's such a small thing, but it really yeah. cemented the togetherness and the fact that he was going to be fair. So, Sharon, what would be the single most memorable thing that you remember of, uh, of your dad? Well, it's, it's hard to say, really. We're talking about him as a militant man and as a leader, whereas the other piece of the story, he was also my dad. Uh, the story about the fact that he loved family celebrations, that's a kind of a, a personal thing. And the fact that I met some fascinating people simply because of his connections, that's another piece of the puzzle. It's, it's hard to say there's any one particular thing. It's a, everything together that made the, the man who he was. What's on the horizon for the Chandlers? <laughs> Getting through 2022. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, they, and, they may, and remaining healthy. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> oh, ordering, ordering in a big batch of masks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> more, more masks. Yeah. And looking after family. Yeah. No, it's, looking um, after family and being with them as much as possible. So I'm sure you get asked this or will get asked this uh, a thousand times, any New Year's resolutions? <laughs> Getting through 2022 in one yeah, uh, yeah, no. Just, just weathering the storm as best as possible, continuing with volunteer work, which is an important part of our lives. We uh, we sponsor students here every year. It's, it's, uh, it's going to be a busy year. They always are. Yeah, we, um, 
we sponsor the Canadian Forces Command and Staff College. It's just down the road from us on um, on Wilson Boulevard, and we every year we sponsor foreign student a foreign student, and we have been sponsoring the Korean students because the Koreans there there is about eighteen foreign students every year and about a hundred uh, Canadian students, and we volunteered many years to go to to sort of look after the foreign students. And we now, for I think the 23rd or 24th year, are looking More after the Korean, the Korean officer. The Koreans come with their, their, their wives and their families. Um, usually they have one or two small children. Um, as a matter of interest, Bill, the officer this year is a, a Korean army, and we're talking South Korea now, not North Korea, <laughs> obviously. This year, the officer is a um, is an air defense officer. Uh, last year, they, they didn't send any be, because of the, the lockdown, but the year before that, it was a naval officer. Oh, about four years ago, we had an F-15 pilot from the Korean force, and he was a very, very interesting chap. And it's interesting, most of them arrive with partial English. Usually, the wives don't speak English but by the time they've been here for a short period of time, they speak enough English. Their kids, if they have small children, the small children are usually fluent by Christmas time because they go into the local school. And by the end of the, the spring session, just before the students go back to their home, home countries, the children are translating for their parents, which just goes to prove you catch somebody young enough you can teach them a, a different a foreign language. We also have been lucky enough to have students from uh, Brazil, the Czech Republic, where else Senegal, Senegal, Australia, the United States, Germany, Germany, yeah. Australia. Wow. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes we have got two students a year, two families. Yes, yeah, sometimes we take two families. So, any final thoughts for the uh, for the audience? You know, we're pleased to have this opportunity to. Uh, <laughs> To talk about what, for lack of a better term, might be described a, a national hero, although as time goes by, memories fade, and the war for most people, the Second World War for most people, is now in Canada is ancient history. But I'm glad you've taken the opportunity, and yes, we certainly you. want to thank you. Yes. yes, thank you very much. Thank you very, very much for yeah. what you're doing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Plain Talk. If you have any ideas for a future Plain Talk episode, please go to the Contact Us page at plaintalk.ca and send in your idea. Don't forget to like us at plaintalk.ca, our Facebook and LinkedIn pages, and this podcast. And never stop living the dream.